topic today is uh, how to grow, growing your product revenues from 10 million to 50 million. This is taken into account. It could be a company with one product or it could be a larger company with many products. And how do you take, what are the means to grow at this scale? We've asked people before the session if there are any questions. We have a number posted here that we'll address throughout the session today. I want to introduce, introduce first of all, uh, Sandy McKenzie. Welcome, Sandy. Uh, thank you very much, Donna. Good so, afternoon, everybody. Sandy has a very strong experience in helping technology companies grow all across Europe and further in both direct sales and in channels and working with early stage companies and in established companies and helping them grow into various channels and means. Myself, uh, Donna Kiernan, as a techie, first of all, moving into sales and helping technology companies grow both through direct sales organizations and in sales channels. I'm going to be giving a further introduction to Tenego Services towards the end of our session today. But I'm going to repeat again. Any questions, guys, just if you want to direct our discussion, please put a comment or a question within the question screen or in the chat screen. So our topic for today is growing your product revenues from 10 million to 50 million. So the first thing you want to do is you want to set the scene. If you have a target to grow from this 10 million to 50 million within a three to five year period, to do this, right, so you have to assume that you already have a strong product proposition and good market take up for that product. So there's confident growth already taking place. And this is setting the scene sort of at maybe board level, at senior management of what you believe you can achieve, getting to that 50 to 100 million and more with the size of the market that's in front of you. You may likely have a very direct, strong direct sales organization and demanding targets on that organization because you believe the opportunity is there. You may have some partners and partner sales. You may not have a partner organization in the, which are managing the partners, but opportunities rose, you took them and you went for it. You hit a certain level of maturity and you're pushing scalability every day. There may be some conflict between your direct and the partner organization, and you may not have figured that out yet. You may or may not have that figured out yet as you grow, but happy to put up with the pain in the meantime in the context of growth. For our discussion today, we're going to be covering three different company types or sizes or maturity. And, we're sort of, and I'm going to hand over to Sandy now in a moment just to introduce those and talk further on what divides those. So we're separating to enterprise, which could be high touch, SME, medium touch, and small could be low or no touch type customers. To talk about sort of what is the growth challenge? What are the objectives on sort of in growing the business? Firstly, it's shareholder value. It's either you are the principal shareholders or you have investors, and it's all about getting return on your effort and the money invested. How do you increase shareholder value? Increased margins. More money you're making, the better shareholder value. Growing revenues, growing market share. How do you sort of show greater potential for your business all the time and a steady growth path? How do you improve your proposition, thus easing the growth, sort of more products, more licensed revenue, or resulting services to fuel that growth? And then how do you resource that plan and take that forward? So if that was put simply as the growth challenge, right, it is a great challenge, kind of turning those few lines into a solid business. It is a great challenge and all the sort of the, the competition that pushes back in the marketplace. Sandy, hand it over to yourself to talk through the different company types. Yeah, okay. Um, so this, this is very much just a, a rule of thumb so that you can imagine where your software company fits within these different categories and that will maybe give you more of an idea as we move through this presentation on 
what would be the correct route to market for yourself. We, we, we're calling it enterprise. It's software that needs a high touch. It's quite complex. It might well be sold in addition to um, hardware manufacturers, um, lots, lots of services wrapped around it. And you wouldn't expect very many deals per year, but those deals that you do will be worth possibly millions. A highly complex sales cycle, as I said, because there are so many different parts to putting together the whole system that you're probably just a part of. And that could be anything up to two years. And a high percentage of the deal will actually be in services and integration that um, you're providing to the end user. Moving on to what we call medium touch, and we, we call it high touch because you're working really hard with it, you're in full um, relationship mode with the end user. When you get to the medium touch, this is probably for SME type companies, it, it is still B2B. Their deal sizes won't be as big. Uh, we're probably looking 50, 100K up to a million or so. It'll be slightly less complex than the, the full-on enterprise high-touch deal. So we'll be looking at less than 12 months probably. And while there is implementation and services and probably expertise in a particular vertical or domain, um, it, it is less so than the very, very big deals that we've seen um, at enterprise level. So the, the amount of um, knowledge and interaction with the end user is perhaps slightly less than with the enterprise. And then we've got the, we call the smaller or the low or no touch software companies. And these are the ones who are in the fortunate position of already being a commodity. That could be, let's say, antivirus products where the end user is already educated about what the software does. They don't need a lot of input and advice. Um, they just want to buy it probably as a buying decision it will probably be on price as, as well as some of the features. And to get to those end users, it could be the consumers that you're targeting directly. It could be through distributors, but it's a volume sale. There isn't an awful lot of input from you as software companies to actually persuade the end user to buy. It could be done uh, completely hands off uh, with just a free trial downloaded from the website and self-service um, buying again through your website or um, possibly through a distributor. Those, those are the three different types that we're going to discuss today. Um, most often, we we tend to work in the mid-range with the um, medium touch ones, um, but there are routes to market as well. We'll be discussing for the um, enterprise companies. Okay, Sandy. So to talk through then for people on in covering the three different company types, but more first most on the general on where channels can fit into this, and we will be talking about how do you evaluate whether channels fit for your business or not. But first of all, Sandy. On these items? Yes, okay. So, why would you choose to go um, through the channels? Well, it's, it's a, a scalable model and one which you can scale to get to good revenues probably far quicker than going direct if you're in that mid range spot. As a rule, we would recommend that you're go looking at going through channels because you can scale it very quickly perhaps go to markets where you hadn't considered going before. 
markets where maybe you don't speak the language, where you don't understand the culture, where the only way then is really to go through partners. Um, it extends your market reach, it extends your market share. It reduces risk. You're not um, having to learn all the employment laws, let's say, of um, setting up an office in France. You can actually get a partner who is who is French, who understands the culture, the laws, the way that people work, put their toe into the market, use them to experiment on whether or not there is a good market uh, for your software product. So much less risk for you, uh, much less upfront investment apart from managing the partners. Of course, when you go through the channels, you multiply immediately the numbers of sources of revenues uh, that, that actually bring in the money for yourselves, which in turn increases the shareholder value. So as long as it's not a commodity product, as long as it's not a product which sells itself on the website, Almost always, I would recommend using channels to expand your marketplace and to have that scalable growth. So let, let's go through the, um, the three broad categories in, in slightly more detail then. And what defines um, the enterprise or high touch software products? Well, almost always, um, as, as we talked about before, the deal size is going to be in very large figures service revenues will make up a large percentage of that and it may be because of the expertise needed in your home market that you have built a direct sales force and that's working extremely well but as soon as you want to go international and for the reasons i've just mentioned about not knowing the culture of the language not having an established customer base it is almost always more advisable to go the indirect route and to choose your channels very carefully. So in this case, for large enterprise deals, uh, we're probably looking for large systems integrators who already have the established customer base and who depend on revenues from services. That you want somebody who can actually take over your place in delivering and implementing um, the software with the full knowledge that they are technically competent. You don't want to spend the time and the money taking your engineers to a foreign country for weeks or months at a time um, in order to do that. That's absolutely where large systems integrators will uh, come into play. There are a, a little bit of uh, a drawback on this. If it's highly technical, if it is um, a high-end implementation, then it could be that there is a long learning curve for those partners. So you have to have in place some sort of training, some sort of certification. You may have to be prepared to hold their hand and really take them through the, the first two or three implementations until they are competent enough to do it on their own. But on the positive side, those partners have been there for a long time. They have the credibility, they have the established customer base. They know their customers inside out. They're very tightly in, interwoven with them. And that is worth its weight in gold uh, for any software company trying to break into a market. Just want to cover a point on this sort of the, where there's a high level of services. Do you want to talk briefly on sort of some of the challenges, Sandy, on the difficulty in traveling with a high level of services, just because of 
lack of differentiation or poor differentiation for local providers. Um, in turn, from the software point of view, you mean the yeah. ISV point of view? Um, well, yes, I've, I've worked at companies before where it was a highly specialised software uh, with lots of services to be done. And before we had partners, we would have to take teams of technicians and engineers and then send them abroad to live for months at a time or bring them back at the weekends, obviously, to see family. Um, but that meant that the burn rate and the cost of doing that ate into practically all of the margin that we, we were actually making on the implementation. So the only feasible way to do that and to make it attractive for both the end user who didn't want to pay for the travel costs and for the software company and for the partner is to actually um, train up those partners um, in the country where, where the implementation is going to take place and let them do the work. And that is huge revenue for them. It's 100% margin pretty much after they've gone through the training costs. It's what these large SIs, that is their business model. That's all they do is implementation. And very often they don't even want the product license revenue because they like to be seen as being independent. Medium, so th this is where we probably as company Tenego do most of our business with um, the SME mid-range software companies. So they would probably um, have smaller deals, but a lot more of them. They would have a good mix within that deal of both services and product licenses. We're seeing more and more as well that it's, it's not one-off product um, sales in-house use. It's more and more, it's starting to be cloud, delivering it over the internet. So you get the cumulative and recurring revenue which is very good both for the partners and for um, the software company themselves. And you can see a mix because the deals are smaller than perhaps the large enterprise ones. They most often start off with a direct sales force, but they're starting to think of how to expand their, their territory, whether that's geographical, whether it's by vertical, um, different sectors they might be interested to in getting into, but they don't necessarily have the expertise or the established customer base. And that's when you'll start to see these mid-range companies reaching out and trying to find partners who will expand that in the home market. And there are, again, advantages, disadvantages to working alongside partners in your home market. But we will come on to those um, in a very short while. But almost certainly, again, when they want to go abroad, let's say a US company wants to come to Europe for the first time, then almost always they would choose to go indirect through channels, um, partly because, again, they don't have the language, the culture. They want to put their toe in the water and test how well their, their product is going to be received, but also to um, make a, a much quicker route to market by leveraging the partner's existing customer base, their existing skills and expertise and technical knowledge. You can uh, ride on the back of that and gain your first customers and your first revenues in the foreign countries far quicker than if you were to take somebody and start from scratch, setting up a known direct sales force. There are certain conditions that you have to have. It must be a solution that will 
really resonate with the partner that you're trying to bring on board. So it must fit their portfolio. You must have a very compelling partner value proposition so that they immediately get it and want to start selling it proactively and moving forward. And going through the onboarding can be time consuming, can also be quite expensive for them. They're taking people away from their normal sales routines and retraining them in a brand new product. Look at it from their point of view as well. Think of it from the partner's perspective. Do you have a compelling proposition that will make that partner or want to invest the time, the money and the people, well, all those resources into taking on your product? So um, I think what I'm trying to say is last point, but you have to onboard them. You have to hold their hands, give them structured information, training, support, marketing, co-op, anything to ease that learning curve and to get them feeling confident about going into the marketplace with your solution. There's a few questions that we could address at this point, but I think we'll hold on a few ones there. So thanks for some comments from like Michael there and comments there. Thank you for that. But any comments or questions, guys, uh, keep them coming. But we'll address the questions shortly. So as we were talking, this is high volume, low value software. It's either already a well-known, educated mark that you're, you're going into with, let's say, antivirus or, um, I don't know, Microsoft Outlook. Everybody knows about them. You don't have a hard sell. They just want to find a good price. And a lot of the time that would be self-service over the website. It's, or it could be very small. I'm, I'm thinking of um, apps, for example, which are very on mobile phones. Um, and you wouldn't dream of putting in a, a reseller or a distributor to try and sell those because they sell themselves and it's B2C marketing in effect. So in the home market, you'd probably, you would do that through the web. If you weren't finding um, quite the number of customers coming through that you wanted, you might try inside sales, uh, but usually with, with good marketing and social media and everything else that you can do nowadays, um, that would probably be a last resort. When you're going international, again, it's the same. These tend to be, because it's a commodity, they tend to be low margins. You can't really afford to go through partners and give away more of that margin. So the sort of partner models that you might get would be affiliations, um, click through websites, maybe joint ventures, maybe OEM or bundle deals, and occasionally distributors. But really, it's something that should be driven, I think, from uh, the marketing department within those software companies. Yeah, these partners are more like marketing partners in that sales model. So just one question in there from Jim on differentiating between SME and enterprise. So Jim, we're just we were putting labels on different deal size and the deal mix. So an enterprise, it's just been sort of that complex, large services mix kind of into a very, very large company, multi-million type deals. That's, it, it's hard to um, take that proprietary knowledge and give it into a partner. So but it's heavy service driven, whereas the SME, there might be a clearer Kind of your license and services might be 50% license or more of the deal and getting into that more repetitive, higher margin product business and less service into that SME mid-market type product. So they're the labels we just put on it for this. So the, the high touch, medium, low touch kind of might reflect it better. 
in that regard, but they're the labels we put on it. But I hope that you can pitch or position your company into one of those as we talk through this. Okay, Sandy, so we'll take it into the next one. So on covering the challenge on channel then for companies. Right. So if you have decided that you're either at medium touch or high touch, as we have been discussing, then um, I think one of the challenges is to find out how are they going to help you to grow. And it will be through expansion of new markets, whether that is geographically new countries um, up in the north of Scotland rather than just based around London, whether it's new verticals, whether it's um, in partnerships with perhaps complementary technologies. So there are, there are various ways of growing and piggybacking on what the partners are doing. But in order to get to that, first of all, the software company has to understand um, several things. First of all, what is the customer value proposition? And is it compelling enough to take to partners and say, we, we know that your um, customers are going to want this product? It's, it's almost a no brainer. It is so compelling. If you can do that, then the partner is going to want to work with you and uh, be proactive in taking on your solution. So the very first thing is to get that right. Secondly, if you have um, case studies which uh, and existing customers which you can take for them to use in their sales and marketing to their established base, that is also going to help. So the product and the, the proposition and your marketing must really be up to it. Next thing you have to do then is to try and switch your mindset and put yourself in the shoes of your partner. They are very likely going to have a very different business model. So they are selling direct to the people you are selling indirectly to them. They have would be having your product and your solution as just one component in a, a whole portfolio of different things that they are taking to their end users. They don't, <laughs> they don't necessarily, um, as I say, have the same business approach that you do. So put yourself in their shoes. Think about what they are trying to do, what their business model is, what their focus is as a business moving forward, and then write your partner value proposition based on what their agenda is and not yours. And I think that's the key thing is not just trying to force it onto a partner through features and benefits. And of course, this is the, the best thing ever. The partner will not see it that way. Think about what it means to them, what their ROI is, how they are going to take it to market and, and why this would make a difference to their business. And if all of that is coming together and you're starting to have interesting conversations with potential partners, think then about enablement. It's not enough to just sign them and then leave them to, to get on with it. You have to have other things in place which will enable them to go out and sell this product happily to their customer base. That might well be uh, the sales materials, marketing events, co-op marketing, uh, regular contacts. It could be um, being able to track and trace what they're doing with their end users. 
So do you have a CRM in place which also uh, can tweak to bring those partners on board and allow you to, to track their deals as they're going through? And is the partner fit correct? Is it an ideal partner? Are they going to the right sort of customers in the right place? Do they have the same ethics as you? Do they have the same goals? Are they, do you feel comfortable working with them? Take all of those into consideration and, and it's a big mix. It's a lot of stuff to think about. Michael came in with a comment there, Sandy, that this slide is a complete workshop in itself. Indeed, yeah. Indeed, we've run full webinars on some of these topics individually. So there is a lot on that one slide. And the reason that we discuss it here is to highlight something that might seem simple. Kind of, uh, there's a lot of complexity in there, and then some of the detail in here is just so important to make it work and yeah. at the right time frame. I'm going to uh, just have a glance through the questions to see you've got. So, a bit about enablement here. Is there a defined approach to get partners to actually sell your solution? It is about this partner fit, which has, is a whole seminar in itself. So, if you have that partner value proposition, which really floats their boat, they get it, they can see where their business is going to improve with it, they will start to be proactive. So what you should be thinking about as, as you put this together for the potential partner is how does it expand their portfolio? Is it going to be an easy sell because it's so complementary to their existing knowledge, their existing vertical that they are experts in? Will it maybe help them to retain customers, to have that stickiness that the customers aren't going to go anywhere else because you've just added so much value to them or for them with your new solution? Um, is it going to be license or service revenue? How can you make sure that they're getting enough of whatever they want, licenses or services? How can you tweak the percentage of the deal so that they're getting that? Um, can you put together a whole program with co-op marketing? Can you do joint activities, seminars, webinars, exhibitions where they will be getting those leads and working with you and you are guiding them through those first one or two deals so that they feel comfortable with it and they know that there's going to be revenue at the end of it. All of those things Building the relationship, building the trust, being absolutely transparent in, in the way that you work with them uh, will, over the months, help them to build that relationship and just go proactively out to sell the solution. But one of the things we look for in partner fit, we want to deeply understand the partner's business and to position our client's product within their business in such that we're not asking the partner to change significantly. The more it fits into what they're currently doing without them changing, the more likely they'll be able to slot it into their everyday business, talk about your product in a weekly sales meeting and get sort of the outbound calls, the pipeline push on a weekly, monthly basis moving forward. That's ultimately what you're looking for, rather than asking them to change because you're giving them such a great opportunity. There's risks in that change and it takes time and effort to do that. So we're looking for it to slot into the existing business as much as possible. And that's a partner fit. Okay, thank you, Sandy. We move on. In Looking at uh, the decision between direct or true partners and looking at a financial based decision on this. So what I'm representing here is a sales process and an example scenario. And the sales process here, we have lead generation costs. We have the costs and qualified leads to present at activity levels. 
demonstrate, evaluate and close. And the costs are increasing because there's specific expertise being involved. There are other activities that involve sort of specific setup for that particular scenario and so on. And then there's legals at the end and so on. And then we have success rates coming through from each stage to the next. And ultimately, kind of what it takes, what percentage you're going to get for proposals to win deals. In calculating back, this has given us to make one, to make, to win one deal, it's given us that we need 292 leads back here in this highly competitive scenario in this case. Then when you look at the costs at each stage and then look at the cumulative costs. So this is highlighting, which is typical, that you're spending more than 60, 50, 60 percent on your marketing and sales dollars to get to that sort of credible stage with a prospect. Now, if you take a sort of fit, what can a partner do? If a partner has an existing relationship and they have a credible relationship with that partner and decision maker, can they bring you that 14, we'll say, qualified leads into presentation stage easier, faster than you? Then they've saved you 42 grand of a total 54 grand to win a deal, if they bring you 14, that is, and if the numbers stack. But it's likely, with their credible introduction, that your solution fits into their business, it's likely you get a better rate, conversion rate, from that 14 moving forward as well. That's a real scenario. You're leveraging of their relationships in the marketplace and their understanding of their customers to introduce you into it. So when you look at say, a sales process like this, how do you achieve faster results and earlier revenue? And how do you reduce the cost at each stage? And so if, when you talk about the overall investment in bringing that business through, and then what can a partner do? And what does a partner cost? So it is about accelerating based on the relationship and the credibility of what you do, and thus the greatest strength in a partner. This financial model and decision process can be wrapped around each of the different three different types of business, the high, medium, and low touch. At what stage can a partner help in your business? If it's a marketing type partnership, thus with the low touch, it's easy to map out the leads and traffic that comes through. On another side of it, it's a service-driven one, having the credibility of a large in-market services partner. You might be doing all the sales, but you will not close the deals without their credibility in the delivery side. So there's different stages of your overall business process that can be impacted by a partner. And as Sandy highlighted earlier, a partner can greatly reduce the costs. A financial decision on whether direct or partners make sense for your business longer term, that can be modeled very easily on something like this. Taking that forward, right, so we've seen on many occasions a great number of typical mistakes that are made in people implementing challenge in their business. And the first one is sort of copying someone else's partner program. If you take uh, Microsoft, an Oracle or a HP, they do this, so they're the leaders, so that must fit. So what percentages do they give to a partner? Copy what Microsoft's doing. The percentage share of revenue is just one part of the partner value proposition. If you don't take it all into the full picture, you're missing the, the point of it. If you don't understand the context of what someone else's partner program doing, you may be wasting your effort and time or not hitting it right. Another thing is there's two how you expectations. Two expectations on how fast you can achieve results. And that comes back to one of our questions we'll talk in a moment. How fast you can achieve results and what to expect from a partner without offering the proper supports. And thus, another point there on the poor, a partner support structure, the onboarding, sort of the, the sales materials, the sales assistant, the technical domain expertise assistance, and so on, right across your business process. And that poor partner proposition. And to think, Mr. Partner, you can earn 30%, 50% on that deal, plus services, uh, just go 
chase that business. I don't understand why you're not chasing that business. Well, they're already busy on their own plan and you think they should just change their plan because you have an opportunity. Every company has multiple opportunities presented all the time. So the more you can align with the plan as you talked about partner fit, the better. And then next one is sort of the lack of clarity of what you want from a partner. What you want in generating leads, what you want in sort of in the technical domain expertise, sort of the qualification stages if you like, in the sales and demonstration and so on, right through the process. So important for that clarity. And the inefficient partner engagement process. I've seen many businesses start off in partnerships by pure relationship and because people get on so well they can build initial partnerships and then they seek to replicate that. Relationships don't scale well. Business propositions scale faster. We can talk all day about that particular point. It's about the partner value proposition to make it move faster and clearer. To highlight some of these points in a different way, if this represented your business organization, your business process, lead generation, qualification, sales, uh, delivery and support, and then your product enabling all this. Some of the key points that make it all work. Firstly, what do you want more of to make it work? Do you want more leads? Do you want more credibility on the delivery? Sort of, do you want better qualification to have more efficient sales? And then where do partners fit into this? A few points on this, right? If you have a direct and you have partners, you have one sales organization, and that one sales organization is operating together direct and indirect, and you need to work that out. You need to be able to phase it into the organization if you are direct moving to channels, but you need to understand the capabilities needed, what you learn from direct, and passing that over to support partners. But the two points that Sandy made earlier as well, what makes it all work? A compelling customer value proposition makes it easier to get the attention of the customer through the noise in the marketplace. And a compelling partner proposition makes it easier to get the attention of the partner. In a high volume, more commoditized space where it does sell through channel, like the antivirus example that Sandy mentioned, the battle is for the channel and thus the better partner value proposition. And just to be clear, it's not just about share of revenue. If you are given very strong partner support, say go-to-market support, funds and so on, branding in the marketplace, that can be a very strong partner value proposition. How you ease the burden on the partner to generate business with you, for you. There are a number of things involved in that. The partner value proposition and the customer value proposition are the two very key points. And this is not just theory. This makes it work. So Sandy, do you want to talk through these points and then we might just look at a few questions? Quite often, as I said, the high and the medium touch companies start off with a direct sales model. When they're ready to expand, they might decide that they want to take on partners, as we've discussed, because that's the quickest route to get to your 50 million. The things that you have to consider here is it has to come from the top. The CEO of your software company, um, where you are working now, and you're probably mostly CEOs anyway, needs to take leadership and say, this is the policy now. This is the strategy that's going to help us to grow. We are all get behind this policy and make it work. And that means coming together as one single sales engine. Very often you see, and they are two very different personalities, the people who look after partners are all about long-term relationships with the partners, but turning over to deal with them. Direct salespeople are a very different breed of people. And somehow you've got to find the way of bringing the process all together so that both the channel people and the direct salespeople can work together in harmony um, instead of fighting each other and scrabbling around for each deal and to take credit for it. It's a good idea to step back, to have a look at what the sales engine is. What are the different processes? What are the different steps that you have there? What are the boundaries? And you do that within your company 
but you also do that as well with the partners because there are going to be conflicts and we'll we'll come into that in, in a second perhaps at the end of this slide but within the company you have to manage those conflicts direct sales people will be moaning about their giving away 30% of the revenue, why should we do that? And they're obviously, all salespeople do, thinking about their own pockets, their own commissions, and how they might be losing out on that. So you have to put together some sort of compensation scheme where both sides, both direct and the channel salespeople, can see that this is for the ongoing good of the company. That conflict is minimised. I won't say it will completely disappear, but at the very least, it should be minimised. When we talk about the partners, there again can be conflict. A partner could claim that they have been working with a particular customer, that they are very much integrated into that customer. They are the partner of choice. The way that most companies tend to do it is to put together some sort of deal management, deal registration scheme. That could be through a CRM or a partner relation management so that you register your interest, the work that you're doing on it. That needs careful management as well. It needs regular updating. It needs the partner account manager to be in very frequent contact with their partners to see that the deal is progressing, that everything is as it should be. And you do need to work absolutely hand in hand with this. It means regular calls. It means a good relationship. It means putting together events and marketing and joint sales calls and all the things that keep partner account managers busy to build that relationship. When all of that is in place, that you can start phasing those partners, knowing that it will be not entirely frictionless, but at least the friction will be greatly reduced. A few questions I want to address at this point, Sandy. So can I tell if partners will work for my business? Another one similar, how do I decide whether I should sell direct or use channels? Now, I hope we've addressed that in the previous slides. Um, related to this, what are the steps to move to selling from uh, partly direct into using channels? And can I test it first? Yes, of course you can. What you need to do is go through the process of which partner is probably going to be the best fit for you. That could be in your home market. It might be dipping your toe into the waters of an international market where you've never been before. But when you start to look at what are the qualities you want in the partner? Will they be able to generate leads for you? Will they have the knowledge to go through all the different stages of the sales process? for you? Would they be able to deliver it for you? And you have to decide at that point which um, which of those are most important to you. Is there one partner who could fulfil all those different stages or not? And once you've got that, you know the type of partner that you are going for. It might be a value-added reseller. It might be a full-on systems integrator. It might be just a reseller who wants to sell product but doesn't add any services. Once you've got that, then test it out. Help them, two or three of these people, put together a, a test partner programme, just see how they get on. Talk to them about why they're not succeeding if they're not succeeding. Talk about what's making them successful if they are. Then you can start to scale out on that test bed, take it to more and more partners, making sure that you don't cannibalise people's sales. You don't want too many partners. You're always looking for quality rather than quantity. Slowly, 
you can build up a matrix of which geographical territories do I want to cover? Which verticals do I want to cover? What are the prerequisites that a partner must have? Expertise in finance, in security, in IoT, whatever it might be. And from there, you can start to find the partners, talk to them and go through the recruitment onboarding process. Just one of the points you mentioned there about say, having an initial partner programme. That's not... We're not suggesting people go into a back room for months and create all the legal structures and documents for that. You're talking about one or two, five, six slides that explains the structure, how you think it's going to operate and go out and validate. A question just for Steve. How do you decide on the correct number of partners to sign up? I'll take that. If Depending on your stage of development, Steve, companies want to take it at a reasonable pace just to get used to what it is to onboard and enable the partners. In the longer term, you want enough partners to give you market coverage. If you feel there's one partner in the marketplace can give you good coverage, that's good. Give them the opportunity. But if you think one partner can give you all the relevant coverage in the marketplace, that's good. Market coverage is what you're looking for in the number of partners. Next question again, Steve, is how long do you work with a partner before you stop spending resources on them? You're looking for quid pro quo, in a sense. People set revenue targets with partners. I believe in setting activity targets with partners. So how many prospects or existing customers or new customers are they going to contact this week, next week, on a weekly basis and manage that rhythm? And you know by your own experience by which that rhythm is going to generate results. You are looking for a certain return on investment. Some of the larger partner programs look to reinvest a percentage of revenues, last year's revenues, back into this year's development with each partner. So they can be earning credits, but you want to prime that to an extent. It's really about, a lot depends on your sales cycle, how long it takes to get results, and their commitment. It's not just all about you spending money. They need to be committed to as well. Very briefly on a couple of slides here, it's Andy mentioned about what's the right type of partner. We have a very structured approach in Tenego practical methodical approach to helping people determine what's the right type of partners, profiles and the capabilities looking for in these partners. Just to put that out there, so you don't have to guess. It is not guesswork. There is a structured approach to analyse these things, bringing the various opinions of the dispersed teams of such in your business and bring it together into a clear focus going forward. And equally, when you start looking at, and Sandy mentioned about a decision matrix on what market, it's not about where you've done business or before or what's your contact base. It really is about a couple of key points. Where can you deliver and where's the greatest opportunity? And where can partners enable good access into the marketplace? Or where can you gain access generally? And in this type of table or matrix is a decision tool based on indicators from the marketplace that allow you to make a judgment not based on an individual, the strongest individual's opinion. It's about a judgment of the various opinions and the indicators to help you make that decision and a team to work together going forward. So again, that's just another sort of depersonalization tool, if you like, to get a common focus moving forward. So Sandy, I'll hand it back to you in summary, but I can bring up these points all in one and let you talk through. In summary, there is no one size fits all solution or strategy when you're talking about channels. Um, it depends on the type of solution you have, where you are in your growth cycle, perhaps the size of the deal or the complexity of the deals that you are currently selling direct. Way up where you are very carefully, way up where you want to be in one year, two years and how you're going to do that for those mid-range companies, it's almost certainly channel, but do have a look at it very carefully. When you're trying to get into new markets, particularly international markets, 
channels do reduce those upfront investments of setting up an office, getting local salespeople, <laughs> dabbling with all the various employment laws that you get across Europe, for example, working through a partner, testing the market, seeing how quickly they can reach out to their established customer base is almost always the better way to do things. And yes, you may set up your own company later on as the market gets established, but you don't need to do it immediately. Every company is different. All the partners are different. To say we have very objective methodology for discovering with you which are the best partners to actually take your solution to market. The clients that we have worked with absolutely love this part of, of the, the process. They can step back. They have time to all get together to have somebody lead them through, ask them the questions that in the daily rush of business, they don't usually have the luxury of sitting down and discussing. Everybody finds that extremely useful. Learn from what the direct sales process is and try to map that to how you would do it through channels. They will be needing the same sort of tools, the same sort of value propositions, the same marketing and events that your direct salespeople would. It's just that you're doing it at one step removed. And then try and get somebody uh, leading the sales organization who can see the benefits of both direct and indirect and look at them as one overall sales organization, not two very separate people who are butting heads together and fighting for the same revenue. It doesn't need to be like that. They need to be fully integrated. And lastly, don't just assume that um, because, I don't know, as an example, America uh, or the USA is the biggest market out there, and that even that's debatable, it might well be China by now, that that is where you must take your software. Actually step back, look at it objectively, look at how much competition you have there. Are you going to be able to find partners? Is it going to be easy to access that? How much do you have to spend to to actually make some impact on that market. Having that tool to, to do it in personally can, can actually be, be quite uh, revealing. We, you, we get some surprise answers. So I think that summarizes more or less what we do. And um, over to you again, Donna. Okay, thank you, Sandy. So just to close off and just conscious of time, just to thank everyone for joining us on the session today, I'm going to give a, a one-minute overview on what Tenego does. We help established and growing software companies in grow their markets, grow their business internationally through sales channels and all the different skills it needs to analyze what they need, the go-to-market observe, the market research, the execution, the partner programs, the partner recruitment, partner management, all of those things to make it all work for our clients. Our clients, as I mentioned, they are growing and established companies. They can be from 5 million revenues up to hundreds of millions. A bit like the topic today, how do you take it from that 5, 10 million mark and scale it? So we do that for our clients through channels is our primary focus. Again, to highlight, we're very structured and methodical in how we do things. We've been told by our clients that we depersonalize all the various opinions that might exist on a management team. We help people get in this common direction by the, by the approach we take. The methodologies overall is about making your time efficient, making your time efficient in the decisions that need to be made. We know what information we want and when. Executing with partners, we know what to look for from a partner to evaluate whether it's mutually suitable, that partner fit, and so on. 
all across our process. We have executors on every continent uh, in, in partner recruitment side of things. We have underground presence in multiple markets and growing across the world, thus to help people in partner recruitment and partner management and so on in multiple markets as well. So we can cover many things for our clients into multiple sectors. Happy to discuss that. A lot of the topics we glanced over today have their own webinars, have their own articles, and you can see the different things and the different topics being discussed on our webinar page and our blog page. Feel free to have a look, and if anyone has any further questions, feel free to, to contact us. But again, thank you very much for your interaction and listen to us today. 